Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With the presidential election fewer than four months away, former Vice President Joe Biden has opened up a sizable lead in national polling over incumbent President Donald Trump. But how should these numbers be interpreted? Will both national and swing state polling diverge from actual results this November, as they did in 2016? Drew Lippman moderates a discussion with Al Motter and Brian McGuire to gauge the significance of recent polling and unpack fresh developments from the campaign trail. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Drew Littman, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Brian McGuire on the Republican side, former chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and former assistant secretary of treasury in the Trump administration. And on the Democratic side, Al Motter, former chief counsel to the Senate Commerce Committee and veteran of Democratic presidential campaigns. Gentlemen, let's start with the state of play. Per 538's adjusted polling average, Joe Biden leads Donald Trump nationally by 9.6 points, 51.1% to 41.5%. In the three key states that Trump flipped the Republican side in 2016, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Biden has substantial leads between 7.5 and 9.7 points. In three Potential alternative key states that Trump won, but that might be flippable by a Democrat, Arizona and Florida and North Carolina, Biden again leads in all three. Biden also leads in Georgia and Ohio, two states that Trump won in 2016. Trump is holding on to small leads in Texas and, believe it or not, Missouri. The Economist magazine went live with its forecast model recently since our last podcast, That model uses polling data and economic indicators not to give a snapshot of the election today, but to make a prediction about what will happen on election day. Per The Economist's model, Biden has an 89% chance of winning the general election, that is winning the Electoral College, and a 98% chance of winning the popular vote. So my first question, is it too early to dismiss President Trump? Brian, the numbers I cited have to be sobering for Republicans, but Trump did come from behind to win in 2016. How do Republicans see the president's prospects for re-election in 2020? I think everybody takes polls with a huge grain of salt after the 2016 election. Just to take one of the states that you referenced, Wisconsin, Hillary Clinton, I think, leading up to the week of Election Day, had a six or seven point lead in that state. Trump ended up winning a little shy of one percent. Um, something like a seven or eight point differential between what the poll was predicting and what the outcome actually was. So I think, you know, that's just one example. Um, We could cite other historical examples of candidates having significant leads in the summer heading into an election and, and seeing that lead collapse precipitously. The most famous modern example is Mike Dukakis, who coming out of the Democratic Convention in Atlanta in 1988, had a 17-point lead, um, which evaporated because of some good campaigning, some good ads, and some bad campaign work. I would note that the strategy that the Biden campaign seems to have embraced of hunkering down and making as little news as possible in an effort to make this a referendum on Trump, um, while I can see strategically why that makes some sense, what what it also does is it prevents a campaign from really fine-tuning itself and um, doing the kind of hard day-to-day work that ends up coming in handy if the rate, that 
race does tighten up down the stretch, they may not be as well equipped or prepared as I think Hillary Clinton's campaign was in, in 2016. So I think the short answer, Drew, is that um, Republicans have not in any way given up on the prospects of re-election, and uh, those are a few of the reasons why. Thanks, Brian. I should mention that to Democrats, for people listening who aren't partisan Democrats, hearing the mention of Mike Dukakis just feels like trolling, even though it's obviously an honest and relevant point on Brian's part, that Dukakis' name makes us shudder. Al, are there X factors that you think mitigate against Democratic optimism as we look at the polls today? Well, one, it's not an X factor. It's fairly obvious, but it it bears repeating, which is that Biden is definitely going to win the popular vote, but Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, too. So as Brian points out, if his margin is smaller than the polls currently indicate, it's certainly plausible that Trump could still eke out a narrow victory. I think the polls are correct that Biden currently holds the edge and a big edge, probably. But because we elect presidents via the Electoral College, the president probably only has to improve his standing by between two and five points in four or five states to win. And so that is a sobering fact. And with respect to your question about X factors, Brian hit on something that's important, which is that the vice president's campaign to date has been one of mostly quiet action occasional speeches, and as he put it, hunkering down. If that continues, it will place a bigger premium on the presidential debates, which will be seen as monstrous moments as opposed to significant ones in the course of a campaign when a candidate is out giving speeches three, four times a day. These will be really the only times that the American people will have an opportunity to watch the vice president and the president in a huge public forum which makes this election dramatically different. And so I think the debates are the X factor you're asking about and pose both an incredible opportunity, but also a grave challenge uh, to the vice president's election prospects. Mm. And, and we believe that we're still looking at uh, three debates between the candidates. So that's a great question. You know, historically the uh, commission on presidential debates uh, bipartisan commission sets up the debates, three presidential, one vice presidential. And for the past four or five cycles, that has adhered to the norm. Um, President Trump and his team have suggested adding a fourth debate because they believe and have argued that early voting, uh, which commences by mail and in person in many states, will have occurred well before the first presidential debate. So they've argued that there ought to be a debate before early voting starts. I actually think that's a perfectly reasonable request um, for reasons the listeners might understand. The vice president has uh, not acceded to that request and has said, we just wanna do whatever the presidential commission wants to do. So as of now, three debates for the president and one for the vice presidential candidates. Okay, thank you. Let's talk, fellas, about how to read the polls. And, And I open this question to either of you. Are are there reasons to think that national polling and swing state results will diverge from each other in 2020 like they did in 2016? And what I mean by that, of course, is I think both of you have noted Hillary Clinton, the national polls in the 2016 presidential election were fairly accurate. They overestimated Clinton's lead by a little bit. They gave her a three-point lead. She won by two points. So that that error, that one percentage point error is not very great. On the other hand, in the states, 
the errors were hugely significant. They were really magnified. Do we see the possibility of errors like that in polling in this cycle? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think, and Brian would probably be the first to agree with this, but there are probably people who, when they're called, don't say that they're for the president, but they actually support Trump. And there are people who uh, don't, simply don't want to be called. We all know that. And it's harder to pull a significant enough sample on a state-by-state -state basis to get as accurate a read as when you do a nationwide poll. In terms of the uh, divergence, Biden is going to win in California, New York, and other liberal states by monstrous margins, which will skew the national popular vote. He may win by 10, 20 million votes in California. So that right there is enough to give him a popular vote victory, but it has nothing to do with whether he wins the Electoral College. So yes, I think they will diverge, and I also think the state polls are harder to read. Brian, any thoughts on the on the polls, state versus national? I agree that the popular vote is really not determinative in this case, just as it wasn't in 2016, in all likelihood. Um, the the um, clustering of voters in, in different metropolitan areas of one party will help guarantee that in 2016. There's been no change. I think the question for, for me would be, how does Joe Biden plan to campaign in those states that had gone for Obama and then ended up going for Trump? He's going to have to make some kind of an argument in those cases once this does became, become a race between him and Trump and not just a referendum on Trump, as it essentially eventually will. And Biden's going to need to have a message. And, it, and it's going to be something that, you know, he's currently not um, driving as a message. So I think that the burden really is on Biden, despite the current polling, to show how he's going to campaign effectively and win in those states that went for Trump in 16. And, and those states, just to remind listeners, you're talking about uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, I believe. And those are states that are, are changing only slowly demographically, unlike, say, Arizona and North Carolina, where we're paying attention to a rising electorate. Those are states that that Trump won, though, and maybe harder for Biden to flip. The three key states, upper Midwestern states are states that haven't changed much demographically since 2016. Would you say that's accurate? I, I don't know the demographics well enough. Um, just looking at the results, um, you know, uh, I think you'd have to assume that the same basic conditions apply in 2020 as they did in 2016. And, and Biden's going to have to make a very hard, serious run at those three states for sure. But then additionally, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, you mentioned North Carolina, mm -hmm. Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, and um, in Pennsylvania, if I didn't mention it. Mm -hmm. And if I might, Drew, just interject yeah. with an anecdote I think is instructive. When I was canvassing in 2016 in Pennsylvania for Secretary Clinton, I was knocking on doors in the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre area, an area that Joe Biden believes he can do well in, but President Trump did quite well in. And while I was knocking on doors, a uh, truck pulled into the driveway with a Trump sticker on the house that I was knocking on. And they said, you know, you don't need to come here. And we had a friendly conversation. And I said, well, where are all of your door knockers? And the guy responded curtly, we don't need those. 
And it goes to the enthusiasm of the Trump voters versus the Democratic base needing some oomph and impetus to get out and vote. And this election is going to be determined in part by how enthusiastic each base is. Trump's base, while smaller perhaps than the Democratic base, is much more enthusiastic. And so he can bank on those. Democrats need to turn out voters who don't always vote in states like Wisconsin, where in Milwaukee there are fewer polling places than there were eight years ago, where they have a voter ID law, Mm. where it's not insurmountable to vote by any means, but it's a little bit harder for some of the Democratic-based voters. And so Mm -hmm. I think voter enthusiasm and opportunity to vote will be an issue in this election. Now, uh, while we're on that subject of voter turnout, do you look at the results of the midterm election results in 2018 where voter turnout was extremely high on the Democratic and Republican sides and and draw any lesson from that about whether turnout is likely to be extremely high or whether there's likely to be a a drop off? Well, it would suggest that it would be high, except for the fact that we are in the midst of a terrible pandemic. And so people are going to be first and foremost concerned about their health. What I would look to more as a potential indicator is the Wisconsin primary, which occurred, I believe, after Bernie Sanders had dropped out or it was obvious he wasn't going to win. And uh, the vote in Wisconsin was a, a greater percentage of voters turned out in the Democratic primary than they did in 2016. Mm -hmm. So that certainly suggests a lot of enthusiasm on the Democratic side. But, you know, we have states where the the caseload is spiking, and it's really hard to predict what the electorate will look like in November, particularly if we have a flu season and the confluence of a flu season and a coronavirus continuation. So it's tough to say, but I I think if, if everything's equal, you will have huge turnout on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back at the at 2016 and what made 2016 such an unusual election, thinking about how things might be different, I'm thinking about the fact that Nate Silver, the polling expert who created the 538 website, argued in some detail that the Comey letter, that is the letter that the FBI director sent and, and released to the public just before election day, stating that he was reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, cost Hillary the election and made Trump president. Again, that's Nate Silver's argument based on what he saw in the polling data. And I'm sure that's a debatable point. But what I'm wondering about is, is it possible that there could be another event that simply throws off all of our thinking about this that can't be accounted for by the polls or by the forecasts that occurs in the week before Election Day. Brian, any thoughts on that? I think such an event would be one related to Biden and his campaign, maybe his, uh, you know, the view of the voting public about his fitness. Right now, all eyes are on the president. And I think something dramatic would have to, you know, happen to um, the challenger in order to, 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 to cause a significant shift. Anything that could have happened to, to this current president, I think, has already been litigated and uh, litigated to death. So right. um, I don't see something, you know, related to this president having that kind of an effect. I think, you know, the, just to step back, the president's great asset is the is how diffuse his support is it's not the raw numbers which are going to be as we've said run up in a lot of urban areas 
he won about 26 to 2,700 counties in 2016. Hillary Clinton won somewhere between four and 500 counties, which gives you some idea as to how much more diffuse um, the president's support is. So it's a real tactical game. How do you get the voters in those counties that came out for him? By the way, 200 plus uh, of those counties, the president won, had gone for President Obama the prior election. Mm. So we are not talking about firing up the most fervent um, Trump supporters. We're talking about people who are gettable by both parties. And the question is, does the challenger, in this case, Joe Biden, have the same kind of appeal or lack of appeal, the same kind of appeal that President Obama did, which I think he's banking on? I'm not sure that's a sure thing. Or does he have a kind of uniquely um, off-putting quality, as Hillary Clinton did, to such an extent that 200 plus of the counties that went for her predecessor ended up going for um, for a completely untested um, candidate like like Trump. You know, uh, Drew, yeah. Brian makes a really important point about geography. I had dinner with uh, Senator Tim Kaine, who, of course, was Hillary's running mate uh, a few weeks after the election. And he told me that one of the mistakes they made is that they campaigned demographically. In other words, to get out certain constituencies, but not geographically. And he said, when you lose counties 80 to 20 and 78 to 22 in rural Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter if you win Philadelphia and the Philadelphia suburbs 60 to 40. And he said, what we should have done is broadened our appeal to more red counties and states so that we'd lose those counties 65-35. He wasn't expecting to win, but when you lose by smaller margins in all of those counties Brian talked about, you can then carry those states' electoral votes. And and I think that's a very important point he made and and one recognized in uh, self-reflection by the Clinton campaign. With respect to the last-minute surprises that you asked about, there are two possible surprises, both in the healthcare space, not surprises, but events that could impact the president's prospects one way or another. One is, of course, if a vaccine is available or imminent due to Operation Warp Speed and the president's partnership with a number of pharmaceutical companies. That would be a huge victory for him um, and one he would be able to legitimately claim some credit on. Another is the Supreme Court in October is considering the Affordable Care Act. And in every election in recent memory, health care and which party is deemed better equipped to handle it on behalf of the voter has been one of the top two issues in all the exit polls. So how that case is presented, what the voters view of their health care and the risk to their health care is at the time they go into the polling box going to be a big factor as well. Thanks, Al. Um, I'm going to move us on to ask about something that political professionals are very aware of. I don't know that voters outside the Beltway are, though. The Lincoln Project is um, a group of Republican apostates led by veterans of the McCain and Romney presidential campaigns. And Brian, as you've seen, they're running some pretty brutal anti-Trump advertisements. They get a lot of press here. They get a lot of pickup on Twitter. Is the Lincoln Project likely to have any influence on the election outcome? Or is it more in the way of a psychological operation intended to get under the president's skin? Uh, is it a lot of effort being put toward sort of a ring your doorbell and run kind of 
uh, event. Yeah, the way that these ads are written suggests to me that that's a little bit of a psychops operation. Um, they're so clearly uh, designed to do that. Whether they have any impact, I think my sense is that they will not because Republicans will end up um, getting behind the Republican nominee, as they always do, and Republican support for this president can, continues to be very high. So I don't think a group of um, folks putting together ads here that are designed to get under the president's skin are really going to have much of a, a move the needle in any way. They, you know, as we said um, a little bit earlier, you know, the president's um, various different things that have been said and done and he's done and said have, have been litigated to death. And I don't think that they're going to unearth anything that's going to make any kind of a meaningful difference. Well, let's shift a little bit since we're three Senate guys. Let's talk about how the Senate might affect the campaign and how the outcome of the campaign might affect the Senate. Brian, given that the Senate is currently under Republican control, do you think the Senate will play a role in boosting Trump's prospects either directly or, or indirectly? For example, would passage of another pandemic relief bill help the president? And is such a bill likely to pass? It's an open question. I think the Democrats in the Senate showed a couple of weeks ago that they would rather have a um, campaign issue around police reform than take up the bill that Tim Scott had drafted. Um, one question is whether they view the next potential CARES package as, as kind of similarly um, available to them as a, as a campaign issue. They've been banging the drum on Republican inaction um, if they think that they're getting traction on that as, a, as an issue, um, it's not inconceivable that they would, would continue to um, sort of play hard to get in negotiations and, uh, and run that out. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's certainly, I think, within the realm of the possible. And, um, you know, I think ultimately they do come around um, to a negotiated agreement, and both sides will argue probably in the oversight space that um, Republicans mishandled, mismanaged um, implementation, and they've shown a real, Democrats have shown a real willingness to do that as it relates to the last CARES Act. So, you know, that, that's where I would see this playing out um, in the implementation phase. Mm -hmm. Al, you've done a lot of traveling on behalf of presidential campaigns in, in this cycle and in past cycles. Do you think decisions by the presidential campaigns about how to utilize their resources will affect the fight for control of the Senate? For example, Biden doesn't need Iowa's electoral votes to win, but his presence in the state could boost the Democratic challenger to incumbent Republican Senator Joni Ernst. And you can envision similar scenarios playing out where there are contested Senate races in Arizona, Georgia, and North Carolina, just to take a few examples. How do Democrats game all that out? So first of all, let me just say that an overlay over all of this, again, is the pandemic. Mm. And so you can't have the type of events that you had in the past that would benefit a candidate as much. So, for example, uh, Biden can't necessarily go to Arizona and do a rally with Mark Kelly and a thousand people. Mm -hmm. He probably isn't going to do that. Mark Kelly, of course, is the Democratic former astronaut who's running to unseat Senator Martha McSally in Arizona. What does happen, however, is that when presidential campaigns believe they are doing well enough to feel comfortable, 
They then will invest more money in some of those states to help, for example, as you might put it, bring the Senate along with them. Mm -hmm. So if Biden thinks he's going to win, he will absolutely invest more money in Iowa, in Arizona, um, in Maine to help benefit Democratic candidates who have a shot to give him a Democratic Senate, because that will, of course, be critical to his legislative agenda. And what makes it even more critical this time around is now the open discussion that the Democrats, if they take the Senate, might do away with the filibuster rules, making it easier for an all-democratic Congress to quickly and swiftly enact the president's agenda. So I think if it's a very, very close race, the vice president's campaign will make sure they're focusing their resources on the states he needs to win. But if he feels good about things, so for example, if they're making decisions right now when they feel good about things, they absolutely would be competing in Iowa and in um, Arizona and other states where they can help Democratic Senate candidates. Well, thanks, Al. Al, Brian, thanks to both of you for a very stimulating conversation about the state of the presidential race. Al, just to editorialize a little bit, I've been giving clients advice about the possible demise of the filibuster. And I hope that becomes the subject of a podcast at some point, because I think there's a lot we have to prepare for. There's a lot that clients have to be aware of. Gentlemen, thanks very much to both of you. Stay safe and healthy. And I hope our listeners are staying safe as well. Take care. Thanks, Drew. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.